This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Tim Mahoney. So he is an investigative filmmaker, and he runs Patterns of Evidence, which makes documentaries about investigating the historicity of the Bible. So these include the Red Sea Miracle, the Exodus, the Moses Controversy, and his latest documentary, which is actually a two-part documentary called Journey to Mount Sinai. And so that's what we're going to spend a lot of time of, uh, you know, a lot of our time today, rather, talking about that. It's actually a four-hour-long documentary that he's releasing in two parts. And what that documentary is doing is it is basically challenging the accepted narrative that, uh, you know, traditional Mount Sinai is found on this place in the map. And he's actually exploring... I guess you could call it the top six options that are potentially better than the traditional option of where Mount Sinai is. And so we go back to the beginning where we talk about why he wanted to become a documentary filmmaker, how he was able to make that happen. But then I even asked him the question of like, you know, why should we really care about where Mount Sinai is? Like, do we need to know exactly where something is? Because again, you know, we don't know exactly where Jesus's crucifixion took place, like the exact like pinpoint location on the map. We don't know where the wood from the crucifix is, even though I'm sure there's somebody in the Catholic church that'll, that'll sell you a piece of it or something like that. But like, there's a lot of things out there that we don't know the exact location and it's fine. It doesn't really affect the foundations of our faith. So I really liked his answer on that. You know, we go into where people think the traditional Mount Sinai is and where we got that idea. Some of the people whose research have kind of helped kind of mold this modern overall sense that there's probably something else here that we haven't taken into account and where the Bible can help us, you know, the stuff that's outside the Bible, extra Bible or extra biblical things and kind of what that could potentially look like for this kind of what comes after this, what comes after this whole research project and everything else like that. So guys, I enjoyed my time with Tim Mahoney. So without further ado, let's get into it. Tim Mahoney, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you on here. And just as a, as a soft place to land, I guess, to start out this, this uh, whole interview here, you're a documentary filmmaker. And then I guess you could throw the word investigative documentary filmmaker into there. I'm assuming you didn't want to do that when you were like six years old playing in the backyard. So I guess take me through the process. Give us the truncated version of how you became that. Yeah. When I was six years old, uh, I was actually just mainly watching black and white TV back in my day. And, yeah. uh, we had, you know, one of those, I forgot what they call it, but it's like this uh, little uh, thing, footstool that you used to lean on. I mean, I, I watched TV on my knees, leaning, watching watching uh, Roy Rogers and, and shows like that. And um, I think there was the only do- closest thing I got to a uh, uh, documentary was Mutual of Omaha had some kind of a, na- you know, like a, an outdoor show, you know, with uh, lions and and zebras. And so I was never thinking I would be involved with making documentary films. Uh, I thought for sure, as I got older, um, I, I was, I actually became interested in going, making a film after I saw my first feature film. And believe it or not, I didn't go to a movie theater until I was 18 years old. Uh, and somebody say, well, why is that? Well, it's because uh, my, my family was conservative and, you know, it just seemed like movies were there wasn't any movies my family felt were worthy of watching. Uh, but when I became 18, Billy Graham had a movie company called Worldwide Pictures. And they made a film called The Hiding Place, which was the true story of this family in Holland. And uh, they, were, uh, they were hiding Jewish people in their home. 
and getting them out of the country during the time when uh, World War II was happening. And um, so I said, hey, mom, I really, really want to see this movie. And uh, so I went to it. And the first time I'd ever been in a, you know, getting that sense of the cinema. And I was able to, um, I actually went to see the film three times in mm. one week. Uh, it really had a power on me. And I thought I was going to go into be a musician. And uh, so I, I played an unusual instrument called a pedal steel guitar, which is sort of used in country music. Yeah. Um, and I, I had done, uh, I'd played on a few albums in high school. Uh, and I left home twice to play with groups that were older. I got on their bus and, you know, left for home. And I thought that that, that was going to be my life until I actually went on road <laughs> And realized how uh, how it's not the greatest uh, life to be, you know, traveling around on the bus, uh, at least for me at that time. And I decided, uh, I think I'm going to look for something else. And I thought radio. Mm. I thought, hey, I, I love radio. So I used to hang out at a radio station uh, as a teenager. And then eventually when I went to this movie, that became the interest of becoming a filmmaker uh, about a year later. And so you become interested in becoming a filmmaker, but there are a lot of people that are interested in doing things and then they never do it. It's like there are people that are really interested in the idea of being in shape, but then they don't want to actually like go to the gym or run or do any of those things. And so it's like you have the interest. So how do you like make that a reality? Take me through that. Yeah, I, I think part of it, too, is that um, I have to feel and touch things. So I ended up um, once I made a decision uh uh, to become a filmmaker, uh, it was very awkward because um, uh, what I did is I finished college. I took a two-year associate's degree, and then I heard a radio commercial for this film school. And that then said, hey, am I going to do this or am I going to go on the radio? And I met with the people at the radio place. And, and I, I actually, I thought I'd go into electronics. And, and the guy uh, who came from the school said, listen, if you want to go into radio, you shouldn't necessarily go into this this side of the business. I was more interested. In, it was more like repairing things electronically. And he says, "I don't think this is the, for you." And then I and then I had this other idea of, well, what if I go to film school? And so I went to a one year. It was actually a two year film school, but I only went for one year, and that opened up my my. Uh, it took me to the next level where I then had to make. You know, you're supposed to make films, and I bought a camera. And I started looking through it and trying to get an idea, you know, how do you look through a camera? How do you see a shot? And in my particular case, I actually prayed. And I said, uh, I said, Lord, I, 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 I want to be a filmmaker, but I don't really even know what I'm doing. I don't really know how to look through this lens and see anything. And it was like a week later. Or so all of a sudden I could see, I could see what I was, I could see shots. I could see them in different places. So I think that God answered my prayer. And I think for a lot of us, uh, if we've got something we think we're supposed to do or have a sense of direction, uh, then I think we need to pray and ask, oh, you know, how, how, how can I go in that direction? Show me a way. And so I then started being able to see shots. And that led me to having a sense. I would probably say the thing that, that uh, has helped me throughout my entire career uh, as a filmmaker is having a sense of direction. Uh, whether that direction is, hey, there's a shot here, or there's a you know a story here, or there's something I need to pay attention to, and I think that's uh, a combination of who how God's created me. But I think He creates a lot of us with this antenna, and that antenna uh, is listening to that still small voice. And um, for me, 
uh, so the, the very first films that I made were much more documentary style because uh, I, I was more or less um, not working with actors. I was working with uh, just, um, you know, going around with a camera trying to figure stuff out. I made some comedic, you know, um, productions in college. And then I made some, you know, they almost look like avant-garde. I, I, I was interested in music, so I took music and I uh, filmed my, a sink with water dripping and pouring out and, and I put a soundtrack to it because uh, you're just experimenting, right? And so that, that kind of led me into eventually, um, I met my wife at that same time. In fact, we made a movie just recently called The Journey Home. Uh, and the journey home is a, is a testimony of my own personal life and uh, in the sense that I had a calling to make films, but I didn't know how to fulfill that calling. And so the journey home uh, it starts really with my wife and I, and uh, then I tell my backstory after that uh, of what happened to my own family. And um, uh, so when I, when I met my wife, I was like, hey, I want to be a filmmaker and and she, she, you know, thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Uh, uh, how are we going to do that? You know, how do you make a living as a filmmaker when you don't know what you're doing? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so it's been a process to get there. Eventually, um, my family, uh, uh, my uncle, uh, my backstory for the for my childhood was that my dad uh, was abused when he was a kid, and then he 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 was. Uh, his mother had passed away. He was left kind of alone to, with his brothers to fend for themselves at their grandparents and some neighbor abused him uh, sexually. And uh, he had a lot of rage, a lot of anger. And then he went off to the Korean War and he, and he, he was in a terrible battle. Uh, he received a silver uh, star and a purple heart for, for being uh, wounded, a uh, silver star for bravery. And, uh, but he had this rage in him. And he eventually came... I met my mother, who was really sweet, and we always had to deal with my dad's anger. Eventually, we had to escape uh, because he had threatened to kill the family, and we went in hiding for a long time, um, uh, just to just just for our own safety. Uh, and the, and uh, so I tell that story in the in the film, The Journey Home, and um, and I think it shaped my life because uh, my mother was such a person of faith that she would pray. And uh, we would get down on our knees and, and call out to God uh, for protection, for provision. Uh, I grew up on welfare, uh, you know, so uh, because my dad uh, decided to leave the state to avoid any kind of uh, responsibility to the family. And so we didn't have any income. My mom had four kids. I was the oldest. And that began, began sort of our journey of faith. And I look back on it, and I don't think it was, I mean, somehow God miraculously provided. Some relatives helped us get this little house, and my mom was a real do-it-yourselfer, and she got it all fixed up. And, um, you know, just a little bit at a time. So part of my MO is uh, you find something that people don't have any value in and fix it up, <laughs> you know. Uh, and that's, that. I, you know, because sometimes there are things that have a lot of value, uh, but not in everyone's eyes. It's like junk to them. But my mother was one of those could see it. She'd go, hey, I think we can fix this up, you know. Uh, and, uh, and we did. And it, it just taught you how to, how to, uh, how to see the value in things that, that maybe others don't. 
Well, I appreciate you going into all that detail because obviously those were very formative experiences for you as you go into your career and as you start getting into the things that you're interested in. And so for you, it's obviously clear. Again, guys, the the you know website is PatternsOfEvidence.com. You can check out uh, most of the films. Today, we're going to be spending most of our time talking about your newest film, Journey to Mount Sinai, at least the first part of Journey to Mount Sinai. And then we'll get into part two whenever that comes out in the future as well. But you have a tremendous amount of interest in not only the, the Bible itself and, and God's plan for this earth, but specifically things in the Old Testament, <clears throat> and even more specifically, the things of, of Moses and the things kind of surrounding the Exodus and, and a lot of things that are kind of in that vein. And so Journey to Mount Sinai, <clears throat> excuse me, you're, you're trying to find the the real location of Mount Sinai and not just going with what we have believed for hundreds and hundreds of years, or maybe even thousands of years at this point, about Mount Sinai being at this particular location. And that's that's what the documentary is about, at least the way that I would summarize it. So for, for you and for our audience, how about you give us an idea about what the journey to Mount Sinai, what is the documentary about? And then I guess specifically, why was that such an area of interest for you that you decided to make a documentary about it? Those are excellent questions, and uh, the the journey to Mount Sinai came about about twenty plus years ago. I heard that uh, people were looking for and uh, the Exodus uh, route, and uh, they were looking also for uh, chariots and chariot wheels on the bottom of the Red Sea. I don't know if you've ever heard about that, but sure. uh, people have heard about that. Well. Once I learned about that, and uh, I was uh, involved and brought to, a, you know, shown a film where people were investigating it, I thought, this is fascinating. Uh, you know, could I get involved with this? Because I was looking for a particular, uh, I was looking for something, and I had a sense, and I don't know if anybody in their life has a sense like there's a draw to something. And like I hadn't made any big films uh, at the time. <clears throat> I had made some TV specials uh, on the Bible. Uh, and I made one called The Bible Code, which looked for uh, skip sequences, if you believe it, where you would look for equal distant uh, uh, skip sequences in the Torah, and they would look for words or phrases. And uh, that was a book that came out, you know, 25 years ago called The Bible Code. And we made a documentary on that. Uh, so I was interested. That began my interest in, not, you know, nonfiction uh, more. Um, I think documentary, what's uh, I think I have found that I've been drawn to it because I know that uh, for the most part, uh, I like it because it's real world, real life. Uh, it seems to sometimes to be very profound when you look at documentaries. The one challenge with documentaries today is that a lot of them aren't really documentary. They're propaganda. Sure. Uh, right. They, they're propaganda films that, that, uh, that have been uh, painted over to say it's a documentary. But a true documentary is looking at multiple viewpoints and trying to get a clarity on, well, what is the truth here? Whereas some films are are not. And, and I think that's the sadness that's happened in this genre. But um, so in this particular case, I'd heard about the fact that people were searching for these chariot wheels. And not only that, but there was uh, photography coming out of Saudi Arabia that the real Mount Sinai might be in Saudi Arabia. And that was in like 2000, 2001. I started uh, to really seriously uh plan on going uh, to make a film about it. And then 9-11 uh, happened uh, and the Middle East got more scary, 
for a lot of people, uh, but I still had this passion to search. And I met a Swedish uh, scientist by the name of Dr. Leonard Moeller, who has since passed away. But he had written a book called The Exodus Case. And uh, so I ended up uh, talking with him and we were able to raise money. And in the spring, in April of 2002, I went into Egypt and I went to uh, the locations where the Israelites were said to have lived. I went on the routes. I went to different crossing spots uh, along the border of Egypt. And then I went to the Gulf of Suez. And then I went to uh, the Red Sea area uh, where other people believe the sea was parted at the place called Nuweiba Beach. So I went to all these different locations filming everything. And that began for me uh, the first part of the investigation. And I, I had also then knew that there was... Uh, there was more across the Red Sea there in Saudi Arabia that I was fascinated by. And I got a call from a person who said, hey, there's this couple who you might want to talk with. And it was uh, Jim and Penny Caldwell. They had lived in Saudi Arabia. They'd come out. They were the ones who were taking quite a bit of photography. And we talked with them. Uh, a very interesting side note to this is that uh, when when they when I heard about um, who they were was at the same time that Dr. Moeller was staying with me from Sweden. We talked to this couple, and the um, uh, Jim said that he had summited the peak at this particular date. It's in September, uh, and he said it was on my birthday. And uh, Leonard Moeller said, um, "What year were you born?" And he said what the year was. And as it turned out, both Dr. Moeller, Leonard Moeller, and Jim Caldwell were actually born on the same day in the same year, uh, which some of you say, well, well, that's just a coincidence. Yeah, it is. It's kind of interesting that two guys who were born on the same day of the same year uh, were searching for this mountain. Uh, and, um, it was just kind of fun cause we always knew every year when they had a birthday, uh, that, uh, here, these two guys had this un- unique passion as it were. And that's how I would explain it would be that it was an amazing passion that people had. They could not explain. I don't know if you've seen the movie, uh, uh, uh it's, o- it's an older film called, um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> I- I've heard of it like culturally, but I've not watched it myself. Yeah, well, Richard Dreyfus is a character that basically uh, he has this experience where he's like can't get out. He's like possessed with this idea of this mountain, and he he takes potatoes and builds this uh, mountain on his on his dining room table to get to this mountain. And I just joke about it because I I think about the fact that these people that I would meet were so moved and spent every resource that they could have and tried to get to this mountain to find out where did God come down from, you know, to Mount Sinai and meet with the Israelites? Was this the location? And uh, so there's this great fascination. And I was caught with the same kind of passion. Uh, It's hard to explain for this many years, you know, here we are. uh, It's been um, 22 years and counting uh, that I've been working on. And we've produced now uh, five feature films on the Exodus, starting with Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus. Then we did the Moses controversy, which was about the writing of the, the first books of the Bible and, and discovering this language called the Proto-Sinaitic inscriptions that is really the basis of the first alphabet. 
Then we did Red Sea Miracle 1 and 2. And now we're at Journey to Mount Sinai 1. And we're just working on Journey to Mount Sinai 2 as well. So my whole life has been, uh, in the last third of my life here, has been consumed by this interest and passion uh, to uh, investigate the, the historical credibility of these events. Well, let, let's talk a little bit just to even kind of set the stage because, guys, uh, you will be able to access the, the, the documentary in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. But I guess where do we get the idea in modernity that Mount Sinai is where most people – well, I guess – let me back up. Where do most people think the uh, traditional Mount Sinai is today? And how did we get to that that point of view in modernity where we feel like that's really it? You know, it matches exactly like the maps that are in the back of most of our Bibles. And just to make it even more complicated, a question – I guess one thing that I was struck by as I was watching the film and hearing all these different experts and hearing you kind of take us through everything is why should we care about the the actual location of Mount Sinai? I'm sure you've gotten that question before, but to some people it's like, okay, it's we think it's that peak, but it might be that one. And part of it's like, can we just go ahead with the fact that this probably happened and, and like, let's just move forward. Like let's trust the Bible and let's just kind of move on with our life. So a lot of questions in there. If you forget one of them, I'll try to remember myself, but go ahead. Okay, well, first one is why should we care? One of the reasons why I think that I am involved with this is because a lot of people today that are in mainstream, uh, let's say, uh, scholarship are saying that there's no evidence for this, so the Bible's not true. So what they're basically doing is the Bible is being attacked because in the Sinai Peninsula, and you ask, well, where was that? When was this idea kind of put forth, and it was during the time of Queen Helena. I think it's around, um, I want to say it's around 350 BC, sometime in that time. I might have this wrong, but it it was when she was, uh, uh, she was Constantine's uh, mother, and she went searching for, during the Byzantine period, she went searching for biblical sites and, you know, declaring them. And she was told that Sinai was down in this particular area, I mean, the Sinai Peninsula was named Sinai Peninsula because Queen Helena basically declared this is where Mount Sinai is. Uh, it, and so what happens is that, is that these places receive their names because of the way people think. Uh, and, uh, and then other names start to, to come around those names. So the question of when you're investigating something, does the place name, did it get its name because people thought it was where it was, or was it was that the name prior to it? And that was, you know, that's the challenge of, of uh, using um, topographical names to sort of find things, because then you're saying, well, these names fit the route uh, of the Exodus. But once again, is were those names given to those places so that it would fit the idea of Sinai, Mount Sinai being in the Sinai Peninsula? And so, but there are other, there are other clues in this investigation. It's a two film, four hour investigation. But the basic question to answer is why does it matter? It's because the Bible is telling us that God acts in time and space and that this event really happened. And when so many people were saying the Bible isn't true, you can just ignore it. And the events of the Bible aren't necessarily historical either. If the events of the Exodus then are being, you know, if we're being told by scholars that it didn't happen, um, then what happens to the words of Jesus? Because Jesus talks about Moses. He talks about uh, uh, events in the Old Testament. And then 
I actually have had scholars look at me and I say, yeah, but if this didn't happen, then what about Jesus? And they just get this kind of smirk on their face and they go, mm. yeah, that's the reason why I don't believe in Jesus either. So well, if, if I could, if I could jump in, Tim, right, right into that point, part of the problem that people who are not Christians or Christians, I don't read their Bible where they get kind of mixed up and, and I guess flummoxed is you can't read the Bible as if it's all one type of writing. I mean, there's historical writing, there's, uh, you know, poetry, there's laments, there's, uh, you know, uh, revelation in, in all the things there's, um, I'm kind of getting a little bit tongue tied, but, um, the prophets there's, there's uh, prophecy, there's all these different types of writings. And so I don't want to move into the world of blasphemy here. I'm just trying to give the devil his due. And I don't mean any pun with that, but is it possible that the Exodus accounts are not meant to be read historically, but are meant to be read allegorically or, or something to, to that point? I'm just, I'm trying to think, cause I, I know what my opinion is, but I'm trying to think like, what would a non-Christian or what would a skeptic say in, in the same vein that we were talking about? Does that make sense? Yeah, I understand. And I think that uh, there are, even in the description of the events, for example, that the wall, that the water was parted and there were walls of water uh, on the left and the right. So when we see, uh, let's say, Cecil B. DeMille's recreation of that in the Ten Commandments, what do you see is that he, he shows walls of water standing on end uh, with the Israelites walking through it. But that's what we're told. And um, uh, then other people would say, well, there was an east wind that blew all night. And so it the wind was blowing and it was a naturalistic reason for it. So some people would say that God works in nature and that miracles are, are natural there. The miracle is in the timing of it, the location and that it came at the right time. And other, others would say, no, the, the wind was, was not um, completely physical. It was symbolic as well. Uh, and that the events actually happen. But the question of did the exodus happen and was there an exodus, what we found in the first film was that we can see that there's actually evidence for Joseph and his family coming into Egypt at the location where the Bible places them. Uh, there's, there's evidence for Joseph's tomb. There's evidence for uh, the plagues of Egypt in corresponding Egyptian documents that people have ignored because they're earlier in time. So what we're say, seeing is that there's an amazing pattern of evidence. And the whole idea of, of a more of a scientific approach, which is the pattern approach, science looks for patterns. And, and they want to see, this is, this is a hypothesis. Can we find a pattern there? So all I've done as a filmmaker is I've just said, well, what does the Bible say and can we find a pattern? And then how do you explain that pattern? And I listen to different points of view. And that's the way we structured the films and the investigation. But what we're seeing is this amazing pattern that is matching the biblical event. We're just following that through uh, the historical chronology of the Bible. So one thing that you also describe in, in the in the documentary, and again, there's so much content in there when I'm going to be able to, to, to talk about a third of it uh, in our time today, but you do discuss the difference between the Egyptian and the Hebrew approaches to understanding the Exodus events. And I, I've heard a lot about, about Exodus and about, Hey, you know, why can't we find any of the chariot wheels? Like, you know, in, in the, in the sand there and all these different things. And, you know, I can't really get too much into that because gosh, I don't know, like how much stuff is below the sands in the Sahara desert or 
anywhere else in the world where, you know, topography has changed or something like that. But I guess just give us an, an overview as to the differences between approaching the Exodus events in the Egyptian way versus the Hebrew way. Yeah, I had to actually come come up with a uh, a way to communicate these viewpoints, and I chose the Hebrew and the Egyptian approach. An Egyptian approach, basically, what I could see was that many people who were using toponyms, uh, toponyms are place names. Uh, they were looking at words uh, in the Hebrew, and they're trying to connect them to words in uh, Egypt, and they felt that. That even the place that where the sea was crossed, it was called Yam Suf, and Yam means sea, and Suf has a different meaning. Suf, uh, uh, they were wondering if it was connected to the Egyptian word Tuf, which means uh, weedy or reeds or something like that. And so they were trying to basically say, well, maybe this this place that was was crossed was connected to Egypt, and it was the the reedy. Uh, lakes along Egypt. And so they started to move the Exodus because of the idea of miracles. You started to see more naturalistic explanations. And I, in the film, um, The Red Sea Miracle, one, I basically talk about the same time that Charles Darwin was uh, putting forth his ideas, naturalistic ideas for creation and naturalistic ideas for the Bible, people started to diminish the miraculous. It was possibly even offensive to them, and they started looking for naturalistic explanations. And that drew uh, the Egyptian approach, and uh, Egyptologists drew the Exodus story close to Egypt so that all the events happened close to Egypt, uh, the parting happened close, the names were, were connected, and they followed all that close to Egypt. Now, the Hebrew approach would tell you this. The Bible never uses the word Yam Suf to identify any other location than the Gulf of, of Aqaba, which is the right arm of the, of the, uh, of the Red Sea. And in all the uh, locations, whenever it's given as a geographical term, even when Moses writes about it, he basically creates the boundary of Israel using the term Yam Suf. So that means that the sea that was crossed had to be on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula and that the land that they went into had to be in uh, Arabia, what's known today as Saudi Arabia. And uh, that idea uh, uh, is what these films are unfolding, how we, re how we got to that place. But I can tell you that the logic is, is there in a very strong way. And um, so the Hebrew approach uses the, the Hebrew understandings of things. And the Egyptian approach uses the Egyptian interpretations. But since the Bible is a Hebrew document, I, I lean towards what is the Hebrew understanding of it, as opposed to what is an Egyptian understanding of it. So that's how, have you ever seen in the Bible, says the Sea of Weeds or Sea of Reeds? Mm. You know, but what does Suf mean? Because there's another definition to it. it uh, I think the word Suf means the boundary or border or end of. And it was the given as a boundary, the southern tip of Israel. When Moses basically tells what the what the boundary markers are, he says uh, from Yam Suf up to the Sea of the Philistines, which is the Mediterranean, and that's what they have been historically, and that's what they are uh, today. Uh, you know, so what you're seeing. Uh, that's why I wanted to basically, um, and I'm I'm a student. I'm just trying to figure out what I'm learning. 
as I go along here, and I just say, okay, for me to understand this, I need to say it this way. So uh, often I was, when I was filming people, I had to take whatever complexity that they were putting on what they were saying and simplify it so that I could understand it. And then I simplified it so that people could understand it. So there were a couple of people that were very prominent to this documentary in terms of you know, everyone talks about we're all just standing on the shoulders of giants or those that came before us. And so if you think about it, someone may spend 50 years of their life trying to figure out this one part that gives us this little grain of theology that we could read in an afternoon, and then we can build off the top of that. So seemingly a lot of people that are interested in this, you included, are really standing on the shoulders of people named Robinson and Smith. And so why were these two people so important for the research that you're doing and really this whole uh, quest to find the true Mount Sinai? Robinson and Smith uh, were like um, well, they were two explorers that were that were versed in the Bible, and they went out and went on a tr- on a trail, and they believed, I think, that they were identifying the journey to Mount Sinai. So they favored the Sinai Peninsula, a uh, location, and um, uh, but what we'd had to do is look at and go back possibly even further to. Uh, uh, there, at the same time, there are others uh, like Charles Beek, and um, I'm trying to think of his name. Um, there are others that were seeing that the evidence. I'm see if I got the book in front of me here. That that uh, that Midian, where Moses fled to, was in Saudi Arabia, and but that was a really hard thing for some people to uh, to um, to accept because. Um, let's say several, you know, almost 2,000 years of tradition had placed Mount Sinai in, in, in Sinai Peninsula. So you have Robinson and, and Smith that are basically following and confirming the journey and the route and the distances to the traditional location. And then you have this other scholar who actually, um, Charles Beek, was a, uh, was a celebrated and decorated uh, medal winner for National Geographic, and he had actually found the source of the Nile. But when he basically came out and said that he thought that Saudi Arabia was, uh, that uh, Mount Sinai was in Saudi Arabia in that area, it was it's probably Saudi, in Arabia on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba, uh, he was stripped of his medal. <laughs> it, it was that big of a conflict for people to get their head around. And um, so uh, there, um, so I, but what I've done as a filmmaker and as a storyteller is that, is that, all these characters are part of of this um, this story. You know, they're part of the investigation, and so uh, there are a lot of good things that they have have done. But sometimes they were standing on somebody else's shoulders, right? Mm, so, yeah. so, uh, so then you have to basically say, well, w- what's the basis for what they believed? Where did that come from? And then you have to go back to that. Well, if it came from, uh, let's say, tradition of Queen Helena from a thousand, you know, uh, 1500 years earlier, then you have to basically um, go, but is that correct? So uh, that's obviously very, very helpful research. And even in the documentary, you bring in a ton of different people that have a lot of different expertise. They don't just all come from an evangelical, conservative Christian point of view, certainly not, uh, but they all have a lot of information that they can give to this overall search. So I'm, I'm curious what you think are some of the most significant materials that come outside the Bible 
or outside of, you know, typical uh, Protestantism that are, are able to aid you in this journey to, to find the true location? That's a great question. And I'm trying to think through uh, right now. Um, I think that um, if they're extra biblical sources, one of the things that I'm working on right now is called the wilderness of sure. And sure, S-H-U-R. So when the Israelites uh, came out of the sea, they were in the wilderness of Shur. And um, uh, that's my understanding. And the question is, um, where is this wilderness? And, and uh, many people think the wilderness is close to Egypt uh, and that there's, it, it, sure means wall. And some people think that the wilderness is connected to this wall along the, um, uh, uh, where, where, where the Pharaoh had a, a, a forts. And it was like a, a, a protection, a security you know, of these forts to keep the invaders from coming into Egypt. But there's another way to look at that in that, uh, and, I'm, and I don't know if there's any other biblical sources other than outside of the biblical sources, the understanding of where Ishmael and his family were sent to. And they were sent east of the promised land. And, and if, you, if I had a map, a satellite map will show you, or a map will show you that there's this, this um, mountain ridge that goes from uh, the Gulf of Aqaba all the way up through the Arab Valley, up into the Jordan Valley in this area where there's this wall. And we, I believe that that is where Shur is. And so there's a lot of tradition, a lot of understanding that's possibly both Islamic as well as Christian, that this is where Ishmael's lights lived. This is where, historically speaking, these other tribes were. They were all descendants of Esau, like the Moabites, I believe, are. I'm trying to think of uh, um, the different other groups that were there in the Bible. We know from other um, uh, archaeologists that these were these people lived. And uh, so I think that there are outside sources there. But, you know, when I do an investigation, I don't track down everything because it's just so enormous um, uh, where we're at. But as far as extra biblical ideas, I think that it's a pretty, pretty well to know where the Ishmaelites are. And they, they, they ended up heading, to, you know, towards the east uh, from Israel and even like Midian. Uh, the Bible talks about Midianites coming from the east in camels in uh, the story um, uh, of Gideon. And they had lots of camels and they raided. Uh, well, what we do know is that science archaeologists know that the Midianite people lived in that area. And Midianite, Midian was a, was a brother to Ishmael. He was a half-brother. Um, and so these tribes sort of intermingled, and they're all on that eastern side, and they're all also connected to this area of sure, this wall, and this wall potentially could be the wall uh, of mountains that was a boundary between uh, uh, Jordan and the and Israel. So I, I, that's kind of a complicated answer. But what I'm saying to you is that the archaeology of the of of the Bible and the people groups that the Bible says are in the areas where they we know that those are the areas. And when you start to separate that out, you start to realize that that means that Mount Sinai has to be in that area, not closer to Egypt. 
Okay. I appreciate you breaking down that detail. So as you mentioned earlier, this is part one that's out right now, but it's technically a four hour long documentary that has, is being released in two different parts. My understanding is you're going to look at the first three potential uh, locations in the first documentary. And then you've got three more in the second documentary. And then I believe at the end of the second documentary, you'll give us your uh, you know best guess or where you've come to with all the evidence and all that to where you think it is. So tell us a little bit about that process. Is there a potential that there will be a part three? Is there, is there more stuff that you're going to leave teased out there for us. Just take that wherever you want to go. Okay. Um, well, I am working my way through the Bible. So if you were to say part three, once we get to the mountain, we're going to basically look at the part three or the the next one will be patterns of evidence. Uh, each time I've used patterns of evidence to to give the idea of what the film is about with a, with a colon, which would basically then tell us that what what the subject matter will be. We're going to look at what happened at the mountain. Because it says that God made a covenant with the Israelites. Then they build a tabernacle and they built the Ark of Covenant. And he comes down and, and in, in their midst. And the, is, the Israelites make a covenant with God. And this is a very significant and important covenant. Originally, Abraham made a covenant with God. Now Moses brings these Israelites who've now become a nation of 12 tribes. And he, they make a covenant to him. And uh, after about a year, I think, at the mountain, they, they're going to go to the promised land uh, to take it. Uh, it was given to them. It was promised to them. There's, and uh, this is what this promise was to Abraham 400 years earlier, that your descendants will grow into a mighty nation and they'll be enslaved, but in the future they'll return to this land. But they didn't have the faith. The, the, the people, uh, ten, they sent out 12 spies, the Bible tells us, and 10 of them, just said, hey, we can't go there. This is too difficult. There's giants in the land. And they anger God to the point where he says, that's it. I'm done with these people. I've, I've lost my patience for the last time with them. And they're all going to have to wander in the wilderness and die. And so the next film will actually look at this covenant, what happened, uh, uh, what happened there when they decided not to go in the promised land, and where did they wander? And then after that, we're going to work our way into the death of Moses and Aaron and into the promised land, because we've got tremendous new evidence uh, showing inscriptions uh, at the locations where they came in. And the Israelites, again, a second time, make a covenant with God. The next generation makes a covenant, uh, and they are there's uh, evidence of, of the location. There's evidence of, of a lot of this that we've already filmed. Uh, in this area of them making a covenant. And then they work their way into the promised land. And there's there's tremendous uh, evidence that's very unique about uh, with giant footprints uh, coming up from the Jordan Valley, archaeological, you know, remains. Uh, what do these footprints mean? And remember I told you about the tabernacle that was built? Well, they were bringing that tabernacle wherever they went. And we'll find, then we're going to go to, to the location of Shiloh and look for evidence there of what they found at the location where the tabernacle was uh, eventually brought into Israel and stayed for a number of years. So uh, that's sort of the direction, patterns of evidence, the, the hope and prayer is to work our way through the Bible. 
Okay, so um, we'll make this the last question of the day. I'm curious in the future, is there something, because always if, if you're going to hang with us uh, you're this far into an interview, I want to give some red meat to my audience. I want to I know something that's going to make you uncomfortable to say it. Is there something in the future, like something that's been kicking around in your head? Is there an area that you'd like to really dig into and investigate to kind of figure out that maybe you haven't told a whole lot of people about that you'd be comfortable letting us know something cool for the future? Um. There are multiple things, and and that yeah, that's a great question. But I will say this: um, I think that we're we are living in uh, mythologies right now. We think about the Greeks; uh, they had their Greek gods, and the Romans had their gods. Uh, each culture, I think, and each time period has their own mythologies, and we're living in a mythology right now that uh, the future will continue to. Uh, become more advanced. Uh, you know, they're looking at transhumanism uh, for people. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying to find ways to basically say you can be whatever you want to be. Uh, and uh, and the Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to, you know, once to, to die. Uh, but I, I've been shocked by people looking at finding a way to basically move consciousness from themselves into some kind of machine that they would create or whatever. And so as I'm looking into the future, I'm realizing that there are laws of the universe. And these laws are physical laws, but they're also spiritual laws. And the Bible tells us that in the future, uh, we're going to stand before God and, and whether our name is in the Lamb's Book of Life or not is a really serious situation. Uh, and I think that people have don't realize that how brief their existence is. The creator of the universe has given us this little window of time to recognize who he is. Uh, and the heavens declare the glory of God. And what's happening is, is, is that many people can be deceived as to you know, why they're here and what their origin is. And I think if I'm uh, one of the, as I'm working on uh, more films, it'll be about origin and future. It'll be about, uh, these films are films of remembrance and forewarning. And um, I think that um, they'll become more dangerous in in what they do. Well, that, that'll be uh, something interesting to keep tabs on. But Tim, I appreciate you going into all the detail that you have today, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? And uh, I'll just say that when I say dangerous, I mean spiritually. When you think about what's going to happen in the future, you need to pay attention because we only get one chance at this. So that's uh, that's what I feel. I think it's time for people to wake up and and whether they're a believer or not, it's time for them to uh, to pay attention. So thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. I think that's a great place to leave it. Tim Mahoney, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks for having me. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Tim Mahoney. But before I let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the link I've got for you today is a link to the Patterns of Evidence website so you can check out all the documentaries for yourself. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary 
anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.